Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 2020 brought historic wildfires to California and the West Coast and a record-breaking Atlantic hurricane season on top of the pandemic. And now we know it was the hottest year ever, as climate reports released this month confirm it virtually tied with 2016 for the warmest year on record. Joining me now is Dr. Zeke Hausfather, Director of Climate and Energy at the Breakthrough Institute and a research scientist at Berkeley Earth. Zeke Hausfather, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. So, I mean, 2020, tied with 2016 as the hottest year on record, also making the hottest years recorded all occurring in the last seven years or so. I mean, first, what are the key things to understand about what happened in 2020? So 2020 was remarkable across many aspects of the Earth's climate. Um, And as you mentioned, it tied with 2016 as the warmest year on record. Um, But why that's in some ways surprising is that 2016 was a super El Nino event. Uh, It was one of the biggest El Nino events in the last century. Uh, And El Nino is a pattern of uh, ocean temperature variability in the tropical Pacific uh, that tends to boost global temperatures, just like its twin La Nina reduces global temperatures. And so while 2016 was a super El Nino year, 2020 actually saw a modest La Nina uh, conditions in the latter part of the year, which we'd expect to slightly cool global temperatures rather Mm. than warm them. Um, And so the fact that we tied 2016 is remarkable. And and it means that we've essentially added a a permanent El Nino worth of warmth to the climate system in just the last five years due to human greenhouse gas emissions. So even Uh, with the La Nina and also with reports that there was a significant reduction in greenhouse gases in 2020, you know, with the lockdown and reduced economic activity? I mean, was it just too soon to see any kind of effect from that? Well, the challenge with climate change is that um, it's mostly driven by CO2, and CO2 is a gas that accumulates in the atmosphere. So the amount of warming the Earth experiences is not necessarily due to our emissions this year. It's due to the sum of all our emissions since the Industrial Revolution. And so while emissions globally are going to be down somewhere around 7% this year, you know, that still brings us just back to about 2011 levels of warming. And the world was still emitting you know, 32 gigatons, 32 billion tons of carbon dioxide in 2011. Uh, and so as long as our emissions remain much above zero, the Earth will continue to warm. Um, and the only way to get warming to stop is really to get all our emissions down to zero. So then, well, our last segment was about how our state is bracing for an extreme weather event made worse by catastrophic wildfires. I mean, how are we most immediately experiencing this global temperature rise? What are the worst impacts right now that we are feeling in California and globally? So one of the big things we're experiencing is heat waves over land. Um, When we talk about all these global temperature numbers, like two degrees C or 1.5 degrees, you know, we we really gloss over the big differences we see in different parts of the world. 
Um, so while the world as a whole was about, you know, somewhere between 1.2 and 1.4 degrees centigrade warmer or, or 2.2 to 2.5 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than the pre-industrial period in 2020, um, the land was much warmer than that. This year, the global land was about 1.9 degrees C or, or 3.4 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than it was back in the pre-industrial period. Uh, and then some parts of the land are warming much faster than that. You know, the Arctic is warming about three times or more faster than the global average. And we're seeing huge changes there. Um, so one big thing we see is heat waves. Uh, another we see is more moisture in the atmosphere, as the previous guest talked about, more intense precipitation events associated with that. Um, you know, high sea surface temperatures can affect hurricane formation and certainly played a role in the uh, record hurricane season we saw in the Atlantic this year. Um, and then there's a lot of effects on ecosystems. A lot of plants and animals can only live in certain temperature ranges. And the rapid warming we're experiencing is much faster than most species can adapt to, either by migrating or, you know, in the longer term evolving. Uh, and so we're starting to see large scale losses of the natural world, uh, of wildlife, of species. Um, and we expect in scenarios where we don't get our emissions under control, you know, up to a third of the world's species might go extinct by the end of the century, um, which would really be catastrophic, um, you know, not just for our own well-being, but, you know, for the natural world that we're leaving our children. I mean, can you also just talk about our oceans, sea level rise, the impacts to vulnerable communities? Yeah, so, you know, most of the heat that's trapped by our greenhouse gases ends up in the ocean, more than 90% of it. Um, and actually in 2020, the ocean heat content set a new record, um, increased by about 20 zettajoules. Now a zettajoule is a billion trillion joules. You know, it's a mind-numbingly large number. And to put it in context, it's more than 30 times all of the energy used by humans from coal, gas, nuclear, oil, solar, wind, hydro, et cetera, combined in the year 2020. Uh, our greenhouse gases have added 30 times that much heat to our oceans. Uh, and that's causing a lot of changes in our oceans. Um, the oceans are expanding, which contributes to sea level rise. Um, higher surface temperatures are causing ice sheets and glaciers to melt, which also contributes to sea level rise. And we saw record sea levels in 2020. You know, there's a notable acceleration of sea level rise over the last uh, few decades, uh, with more and more of it starting to come from these big ice sheets. Um, and so this is, you know, threatening coastal communities. We're seeing more flooding during high tides in places like Miami than we ever saw before. Um, and our estimates is that, you know, if we don't reduce our emissions, we could definitely see, you know, up three feet or more of sea level rise by the end of the century, which would inundate many low-lying areas. Um, and, you know, so this is, is really a challenge um, for our oceans um, and for many of the creatures that live in there, um, yes. particularly in, in a world where we don't get climate change under control. We'll have more with Zeke Hausfather, Director of Climate and Energy at the Breakthrough Institute. After the break, I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the state of the climate after data show 2020 was tied for the hottest year on record. 
I'm joined by Dr. Zeke Hausfather, Director of Climate and Energy at the Breakthrough Institute and a research scientist at Berkeley Earth. And you, our listeners, join us. What questions do you have about this climate news? What are things, big or small, that you're doing to decrease your carbon footprint? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, and you can email us at forum at kqed.org. You know, Zeke Housefather, when you were talking before the break about, you know, these incremental increases in overall temperature, but then the dramatic impacts that it has, you were really getting at what I think is often sort of a disconnect, right? Like we don't always understand why these tiny shifts are such a big deal. I wonder if there's more you want to say about that. Um, And especially in light of the fact that uh, President Biden has put the U.S. back in the Paris Agreement. How big a deal is it? I mean, is that benchmark still effective? So Paris is a big deal. You know, it's almost every single country on the planet coming together, you know, with a common concern about climate change and making, you know, real, if in some cases, modest commitments to take action against it. And, you know, U.S. rejoining Paris this year is part of, you know, a, a number of big changes that are happening around the world. You know, for all of the grim climate news in 2020, you know, in many ways, 2020 was also the year when the world's energy transition became impossible to ignore. Um, So, for example, the International Energy Agency, a a historically conservative group, found that solar and wind are now the cheapest forms of new energy to build across many parts or most parts of the world. You know, China stunned the international community when it committed to get all its emissions to zero by 2060. Japan and South Korea joined suit. Uh, The Biden uh, administration has a similar promise. Um, And so, you know, things are changing slowly. We're sort of bending the curve of our emissions down, to to borrow a metaphor from COVID, even if it's happening far too slowly to, you know, get to the place where you want to be. And so to add a little bit of context on that, you know, right now the world is on track for about three degrees centigrade warming um, by the year 2100, so about five degrees Fahrenheit, um, with some uncertainties, given current policies that are in place. Um, And this would produce some pretty serious negative outcomes for human and natural systems, as we've talked about. But it's a notable improvement from a decade ago when we were on track for four degrees or more warming. And with these new commitments by countries, if, you know, China, South Korea, the EU, the U.S., Japan all meet their net zero commitments, it would put us on track for about 2.1 degrees warming by the end of the century centigrade. Um, And, you know, which is much closer to the Paris Agreement goals. Um, But that said, you know, commitments on paper for two to three to four decades from now are only worth so much unless they're reflected in short-term policies. And so 2021 is really gonna be the year where we look to see if all of these new commitments that countries have made in 2020 get reflected in actual action. Yeah, well, let me go to caller Mark in San Mateo. Hi, Mark. <clears throat> Hi, just a quick question. I, I uh, drive a Tesla, which seems on the surface to be a green event, yet that energy is generated somewhere and it may not be a clean source. So I always wonder how much I'm receiving the... Mm. Mark, you're breaking up there, but I think we got the gist of your question. Mm-hmm. Zeke Housefather. Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, and it depends a lot on how your electricity is generated. So if you live in, say, the Midwest US, where almost all or a large part of your electricity is generated from coal, um, 
it could be that you know your Tesla is not really saving much more emissions than a, a Toyota Prius hybrid. You know, in pretty much all cases today, even in somewhere like China, an electric vehicle is going to be better than a conventional gas or diesel vehicle. Um, but in high coal areas, you know, it's it's comparable to a hybrid. Uh, but that said, you know, our electricity grid here in the U.S. is greening really quickly. Um, you know, we've cut coal in half. Uh, in the U.S. in the last decade, uh, and it's falling precipitously right now. And so over the life of an electric car that you buy today, uh, the emissions associated with driving it are going to fall pretty dramatically simply because we're going to be changing the way we generate electricity. And so while electric vehicles are a good uh, way to reduce emissions today, you know, you're really investing in a sector that's going to be key to, to bring emissions much further down in the future as we clean up the way that we generate power. You know, Zeke, I see and hear a lot of hope in what you're saying about renewables and what you were saying about the International Energy Agency, and that you are saying that this transition is happening quickly. But I think the big question is, is it happening fast enough? Um, I mean, it's never going to be fast enough. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's there's different levels of bad, right? Um, a world where we manage to limit warming to below two degrees um, is certainly worse for than one where we hit 1.5 degrees, which is sort of the aspirational target of the Paris Agreement. Um, but it seems more realistic based on you know the path we're on today. Um, and it's still a big lift, but that's still a lot better than a world that's of three degrees warming, right? And so every year in which we sort of deploy more and more clean energy, we make clean energy cheaper, but we don't see really dramatic cuts in global emissions, we're both making the worst case less likely, but also making the best case less likely. And so we're sort of muddling through to a world of somewhere between two and three degrees warming globally today, uh, centigrade. Um, and that's not where we want to be. We need stronger action if we want to limit warming to below two. But we should also you know, be cognizant that we are making some progress. It's not all doom and gloom. Well, this listener, Jonathan, would like to know, can you give us an overview of the global warming effects of methane versus carbon dioxide? Specifically, how long does each gas stay in the atmosphere and how much does each gas warm the planet? So about a quarter of the warming that the world has experienced since pre-industrial times is attributable to uh, human emissions of methane. Um, but methane is a very different greenhouse gas than CO2. So once you get CO2 in the atmosphere, um, about half of it gets removed by uh, ocean and land sinks, so taken up by the oceans or vegetation over uh, the 100 years after it's emitted. Um, but a, a sizable chunk of the car that carbon stays in the atmosphere for thousands or tens of thousands of years. Um, methane is very different in that it has a very short atmospheric lifetime. Instead of having to be absorbed by the land or the ocean, methane breaks down in the atmosphere when it interacts with OH radicals. Um, and so the average lifetime of a molecule of methane in the atmosphere is only about 12 years. Uh, and so what this means is that while methane is a really powerful greenhouse gas, it's also a very short-lived one. And if we cut our methane emissions, we can quickly reduce the warming associated with methane. Whereas if we cut our CO2 emissions, we're simply going to stop the world from warming more. Um, and so a, a simple way to look at it is that the effect of um, CO2 on temperatures is cumulative, while the effect of methane on temperatures is a function of the rate of, of methane emissions. I mean, I feel like that leads into this, this question of what are the most important things we can do right now to cut these emissions, or, or just even the most feasible or practical steps that people can take in the moment, just on a personal level. So as individuals, you know, there's a certain amount we can do. Um, at the end of the day, a lot of what needs to happen is going to be policy and technology driven. Um, but certainly one way to help make clean energy cheap is to be an early adopter of a lot of these technologies. 
you know, things like electric vehicles, like heat pumps, uh, like alternative proteins. Uh, if you have a, say, Beyond or Impossible Burger instead of a beef burger, you know, buying them certainly reduces your own emissions, but it also, you know, helps drive economies of scale in the production of these technologies. Because the best way to get our emissions down in the long run is to create alternatives to what produces fossil fuels today that provides the same level of service. You know, asking everyone to turn off their heat and to, you know, stop flying completely, you know, might work in an ideal case, but in the real world, it's going to be a really hard sell for most Americans, right? Um, and so, what I'm optimistic about is getting alternatives that are climate friendly. Um, and to do that, you know, we need to help drive the adoption of those. Uh, well, you know, I couldn't help but notice that you tweeted about Elizabeth Weil's recent piece in ProPublica. This was about a climate scientist. I mean, basically driven to the brink by knowing how bad the climate emergency is, but but having to convince people to do something about it and to really pay attention to it. And it just made me wonder, I mean, she has this line where she says, you know, what happens if a human, or to be precise, a climate scientist, both privileged and cursed to understand the depth of the problem lets the full catastrophe in. And I couldn't help but wonder how you manage that as well as a climate scientist. Um, so there's some compartmentalization that happens there, um, you know, and, and some acceptance that, you know, the world that I'm going to leave my daughter is not going to be the same as the world I live in right now. Um, but also, one thing that, you know, we learn from a lot of our, our climate models and a lot of the research we do is that climate is really a matter of degrees more than thresholds. Um, you know, there's not, to our knowledge, some point at which we pass where, you know, climate runs away and we're all doomed and humans go extinct, right? You know, it's, it's one of these problems that the longer we wait to address it, the more our emissions increase, the worse it gets. Um, but, you know, to, to use a metaphor, like, you know, climate is, is more like diabetes than an asteroid. You know, it's not a huge rock that's going to hit the planet and blow it up in one singular huge catastrophe. It's, it's a chronic condition that we need to manage uh, as best we can by reducing our emissions. Um, and so, you know, I think that there are worlds where, you know, we do get things under control, where the promising action we see by the international community speeds up and where we leave our children a world, which, you know, isn't quite the one we have today, but certainly is, is one where people can thrive. Um, and I think part of it is I'm, I'm more on the optimistic side around technology. I might've spent too long living near Silicon Valley and interacting with folks down here. Um, but I think, you know, given human ingenuity and enough public consciousness in these issues and policymakers that take it seriously, you know, this is a solvable problem. It's not too late. Well, hopefully that's encouraging to Tom, who writes, since the late 60s, there have been people sounding the alarm about the current catastrophic environmental conditions. And now we are going to have to live with the last 40 years of apathy that have led to where we are now. Tom's also reminding me of... Uh, a previous program we did with the authors of an anthology called All We Can Save, which is really focusing on recognizing that, yes, what's lost has been lost, but there is so much still to save. Uh, Gabriel writes, when will California stop, stop being irrationally scared of nuclear energy and embrace it as the most reasonable, cost-effective technology to fight climate change? Your thoughts on that, Seacast Father? So nuclear is complicated. Um, we have as Americans gotten really bad at building big things. Um, and that applies to highway systems, to high-speed rail and to nuclear. 
um, the most recent big nuclear projects that have been built in the US um, have either been canceled or are catastrophically over budget. And so to say that current generation nuclear is the cheapest way to reduce our emissions today in the US is not accurate. Um, the cheapest way is, is renewables. That said, the power system is complex and renewable energy is different in some ways than things like natural gas and nuclear in that it only generates electricity at certain periods of time. You know, the solar panels only generate electricity when the sun's shining, wind only generates electricity when the wind is blowing. And so to have a system where most of our electricity comes from renewables means that we need a good chunk of both storage and of what we call clean firm generation. Things like nuclear, that can help fill in the gaps uh, when renewables are not able to generate effectively. Um, and so, you know, nuclear is going to be part of our climate solution in the US. Uh, there's a huge amount of resources going into both improving existing reactor designs and, you know, these promising new small modular reactors, uh, essentially taking the, the lesson from the renewable energy revolution, which is if you can produce these things on an assembly line, if you can learn by doing, instead of having these huge you know, $7 billion bespoke engineering projects, you can really drive costs down in an important way. And so I think the future of nuclear, uh, in the US at least, is probably gonna be more on the small and modular side. Countries like China that can build a lot of big things quickly are probably gonna be driving a lot of the global adoption of, of more conventional nuclear reactors, and at least in the next decade or two. We're talking to Dr. Zeke Hausfather, Director of Climate and Energy at the Breakthrough Institute and a research scientist at Berkeley Earth. You're listening to Forum, I'm Mina Kim. Jim writes, when net zero is the goal and some human processes will always generate carbon, emission, carbon emissions, it is apparent we need to find effective ways to remove and capture carbon in order to achieve net reductions. What is the current state of negative emission technology? Do we have effective methods available now? So there's a lot of small scale pilot programs around negative emissions technologies. Um, and there's sort of three major categories of those that have received a lot of attention. Uh, the first is what we call natural climate solutions. Um, so essentially using the earth's biosphere to capture more carbon. Uh, and the big one there is uh, simply planting trees. You know, it's a solution we've known about for a very long time. Um, and there's a large parts of the earth's surface that can be effectively reforested um, that used to be forests are no longer forests because they were cut down. Um, and so increasing the amount of forest we have is a big one. Um, part of that is also, you know, producing more food on less land so we have more space to have more forests. Uh, the other type of technology is what we call bioenergy with carbon capture and storage or BECS since we love acronyms, uh, which is essentially planting crops uh, that are highly energy dense. Uh, and those crops absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere as they grow. You then burn those crops to produce electricity and take the carbon dioxide that comes out of that and bury it underground. So you essentially get carbon negative electricity. Uh, and there's a few pilot projects, mostly around ethanol production that are doing that today in the US. And then the third area, which has become a big focus in recent years is what we call direct air capture. And that's essentially directly carb sucking carbon out of the atmosphere uh, and capturing it in mineral form. Um, it uses a lot of energy. Um, you know, it's, it's almost always gonna take more energy to, to get carbon out of the atmosphere than to put it into the atmosphere. Um, and so, you know, if we get very cheap, clean energy, either something like nuclear or renewables and storage or other things, you know, it's, it's possible to imagine a future where you have a lot of these direct air capture plants around the world that are just 24 hours a day sucking carbon out of the atmosphere to help draw it down. It's gonna be expensive, the technology is not here today, um, but if we really want to get to net zero and deal with some of these very hard to decarbonize sectors like aviation, you know, we're probably going to need some of these negative emission technologies at a, a very large scale. Let me go to Anthony in San Jose. Hi, Anthony. 
Hi. Uh, we all know that a big problem with uh, solar and um, wind renewables is they're great, but they don't provide any energy uh, during the times that the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. And they're also a problem when we have peak energy events like uh, heat waves. But yet, I'm sitting in my house here with a, a Chevy Bolt EV electric vehicle with a 60 kilowatt battery in it, 60 kilowatt hour battery. My neighbor across the street has a Tesla. There's several other electric vehicles in my neighborhood. I also produce my own electricity with solar, but I can't sell, I can't get the energy out of my electric vehicle to put on the grid. And California needs and is looking at battery uh, storage to smooth out uh, the energy production of renewables. But here, uh, millions of Californians now have those batteries in their garages, and we can't get it on the grid. So my my suggestion is that the California state legislature pass a law that in addition to having all electric vehicles after 2025, we also have a law that says you have to get the energy out and it has to be available to hook up to our grid. Anthony, thanks. I don't know if you have a quick reaction to that, Zeke, or... Yeah, so so we call that vehicle to grid, and it, it is a really important technology and one that's, I would argue, has been underutilized so far today as the color points out. Um, you know, in a world where most people have electric vehicles, there's going to be an immense amount of batteries just sitting unused most of the time. And so if we let, you know, the grid have access to, say, 10% of our, our tank, so to speak, of our, of our electric vehicle battery um, to be able to draw from when they need extra energy or, or, or recharge when they have extra energy to get rid of, it could really help smooth out some of the variability associated with renewables. Um, and so that is a really exciting area. And, and I agree with the caller. It's, it's one that particularly as we get higher penetrations of EVs, we need more serious, uh, you know, regulatory work by the government. Yeah, well, speaking of the government, we have 30 seconds, but really quick. I mean, President Biden is expected to announce several moves tomorrow related to climate change. I don't know if you've been following that or if there's one thing that you think is the most important or that you're excited about. So there's a lot of really important moves. Uh, one I'd, I'd say is, you know, restoring and strengthening Obama-era methane regulations is a really important one. Um, the other I'd like to highlight is, is making the whole federal fleet electric vehicles, which not only will reduce emissions from the federal fleet, but it'll help drive down electric vehicle costs for everyone else, um, such that, you know, the idea that an electric vehicle is as cheap as, uh, you know, a Toyota Camry is really not that far off today and it's going to be sped up by this. So, so that's exciting to me. Well, there's a lot to watch. Dr. Zeke Hausfather, Director of Climate and Energy at the Breakthrough Institute and Research Scientist at Berkeley Earth. Thanks so much for talking with us. No worries. Great to be on. Susan Britton and Ariana Prell produced today's segment. Thanks, segments. Thanks to our listeners for their questions, comments. Stay safe, stay dry, and thanks for listening. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.